Welcome to the RM Williams Outback Podcast. I'm Terry Cowley, the Senior Associate Editor of RM Williams Outback Magazine. Thanks to Elders Insurance for sponsoring this podcast. From the salt of the coast to sands of the desert via the breezy tropics and the tempestuous grasslands, the architecture of our nation is as much a function of the landscape as an attempt to live in it. Writer Andrew Hull has explored the built environment, how it came to be and what it means to us, the country over, for the major feature in issue 153 of the magazine. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Terry. How are you? Very well, thank you. Hope you are too. You begin your story in one of the most remote corners of New South Wales, the tiny town of White Cliffs. Why did you begin there and what did you find there? When we started thinking about different forms of architecture, it was a really obvious place for me to think about first. It went sort of pretty much to the top of the list. Because of the way people live there, or some of the people, is there is a township itself that's surrounded by hills which is where the town gets its name from and in those hills well at least in two of the three of them uh, there's opal and mining for opal processes means digging underground and and uh, when they dug underground they found that it was nice and cool and the temperature remained constant in there and when they came back outside it was very hot so they went back inside and built their houses there (laughs) and they're really unique ways to live as you no doubt know there's a couple of other places in australia where they live like that as well Uh, But Whitecliffs is one of the ones that's uh, a bit of a favourite for me. Yeah, essentially that idea of a dugout, that necessity of living underground. Yeah, yeah, which is conjures pictures of of sort of cave-type dwellings, but some of the dugouts you find are really quite extraordinary. They're they're mini mansions underground because of the uh, the way that some of them are made. So some of them are constructed, okay, let's lay out a house and build a a dugout. And and those ones are built on a hill called Smith's Hill in White Cliffs, which has no opal in it. So they can pretty much dig what they like and just uh, create their dwelling. In the opal mining hills, they're mining for opal predominantly. So the holes are shaped where the opal might be and and then they're just converted into rooms later. So they'll just link a little passage into a room. So they become much more weird-shaped little underground dwellings and sort of, you know, labyrinthine caves and odd-shaped rooms and uh, different elevations. And, um, yeah, they're amazing. That makes so much sense, I guess. The main reason being that it's in such a hot environment and you've got this constant 22 degrees or thereabouts. And they're so incredibly quiet inside too, aren't they? Oh, well, having spent no time in a tomb yet, I do imagine that's what they're like. So when you first sleep in a dugout, you will have the the sleep of your life because it's silent and there's very little light as well. So you actually don't sort of sense time as as much as you do in a normal, you know, four-sided room, a motel room. It doesn't take a lot of resources that need to be brought in and that, I guess, is is an issue in places like White Cliffs and also Lightning Ridge, which you also explored. Lightning Ridge is another wonderful example. It's an, an open mining town as well, but most of the living, almost all of the living is done above ground, but still the resources, you can really just see that the resources are just so valuable that once they're taken there, you know, they, they get used and they get used again and they get used again. So they become to look a bit like, you know, in the most loving way, uh, junk to the average average observer. If you're a Lightning Ridge or Whitecliffs local, 
They're all precious things that you can trade again and swap again. They're currency, they're essential, they're valued, they're loved, all these items. So they get used and used and used again and they don't get discarded and cleaned up and thrown away. They get stored (laughs) and repurposed. These homes, these places have this incredible sense of place, don't they? Because they are part of the landscape. They're in the landscape. And you explored this sense of place at the Australian Opal Centre in Lightning Ridge. Yeah, they're building in in this little town where there's normal, you know, typical houses that you'd find and there's plenty of them. But there's a whole sort of another world of shack living that are closer to the mines and they're just really just rough assemblages. And right in the middle of one of these areas, they're currently constructing this absolute state-of-the-art architecturally designed building, which is going to be the Australian Opal Centre. So it won't just be for Lightning Ridge, but for all of the Opal right across Australia. It is the National Gemstone, as you would know. And this building has been designed to reflect the nature of you know, the landscape in which it lives. Two-thirds of it is underground, so that's where the miners work and that's where they sort of go to stay cool. So while it's not underground living, it does have a big underground component. It'll actually feature some of the plants, you know, that are basically prehistoric plants. Opal is, you know, vegetative matter that is just thousands and thousands and millions of years old. And some of that vegetative matter was plants and some of it was animals. So those will be featured within this building. The exhaust and and sort of airflow systems are designed around similar systems that the miners use to get air in and into and out of their mines and have good clean breathable air. It's all solar as are much of the shacks and dugouts, you know, they're, they're almost completely off the grid. So it's a really wonderful response, architectural response to what Opal is and what it is to be an Opal miner and to live in that world. You got that lovely quote from the CEO of the Australian Opal Centre, Jenny Bramall. I'll just read it now. That's a beautiful thing to create a public building that within its very bones tells of its place and of ongoing exchanges between people, earth, history, life and time. That's probably a good segue into the next section of your story. And, you know, we're really talking about the story of Australia in a sense, aren't we, with these buildings, with these places? And you did make the point that in Australia, there's a very complex narrative to convey. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I was instantly in love with the idea of this story. You know, what, what buildings can we use to tell our history, to tell our response to geography, to landscape, to our social landscape, you know, and, and buildings do all of that. But one of the great quotes I came across comes from an Australian architect, Max Freeland, which says a, a country's architecture is a near perfect record of its history. Every building captures in physical form the climate and resources of a country's geography and the conditions of its society. Every building explains the time and place in which it was built. Yeah, that sort of really sort of drew the the edges around this story. It's like, okay, well, let's look at some buildings that can do that. Yeah, you certainly can't cover them all, but you did pick out Karkori Homestead near Birdsville in Queensland. Yeah, that's right. When I started this story, the one of the first things that popped into my mind was the, the Gunyas, uh, which are on Mythica country, which probably predate European settlement, or it's certainly in and thereabout. And to find those, you have to travel way up into the Channel Country. So I looked for some other buildings which were up there, which took me up as far as Baduri. And then travelling 
back along the road towards Birdsville uh, is the Karkori Homestead, which I'd never seen before. And there's so many buildings <laughs> littered around Australia that you've sort of never really heard of, so many amazing buildings. But travellers out there will have seen this because it's right on the side of the road and it was, it's got a big old story. It was originally a Kidman property. It's sort of one of those... You, if you haven't seen it, you will feel like you recognise it instantly anyway. It's one of those iconic-looking stone buildings in the desert that have you know, lost their roof and they're just the walls. And I drove past it and had a look and I went and researched it and then I went back to it in the gorgeous light of the evening out there and, and sort of spent a bit of time sitting with it and, and photographing it. And it's got an amazing story of its own, but to tell its story almost breaks it down. So for me, the Karkori ruin is is the story of being way out there in that landscape in, you know, having gone over the dunes and down through the creeks and back over the dunes and down through the creeks, because that's what the people who built that building had to do. And they had to do it not in a you know, comfortable air conditioned four wheel drive like I'm getting around in, but in, you know, much harsher circumstances. And, you know, I think when you sort of dive into these buildings and things like that, you can really, it's a window, it's a portal where you can explore that sort of difference of time and how it intersects with landscape. And you've contrasted that, those ruins with those remarkable gunyas. Yeah, that's right, Terry. Uh, very, very nearby, certainly in channel country scale, which makes them not nearby at all in anyone else's scale. There are these remarkable buildings. The buildings were created by the Mythica people. So it's the area is Mythica land, the um, Aboriginal people traditionally from that area and the traditional custodians. And I went out there with uh, one of the traditional custodians, uh, Josh Gorringe, and the family lives at Windora, but they look after and and research uh, in conjunction with various universities, these sites and the legacy of the I guess, the traditional ownership of the land land and the landscape. Now, these buildings are, they, well, they're called gunyas. Um, they're called different things in different parts of Australia, but traditional Aboriginal dwellings. Uh, they're made of like the, some of the hardest wood that we have in Australia, so they're made out of gidgee. They're these uh, bent gidgee boughs that form like a rough dome-like sort of structure. You could probably fit eight or ten people inside them. But, of course, the, you know, they're quite fragile now. They're over a couple of hundred years old, so they, um, they're carbon dated in and around and under and beside. And, yeah, somewhere in the mid-1700s is where they, they date their construction or the evidence that's in and around them, which is quite remarkable that they're still standing. It sort of effectively makes them the oldest standing buildings in the country. And, they're again, another way to sort of just go to that place and see that sort of structure it really is a portal to the life of the place these gunyas are sort of not near the nearby creek which sounds a bit contradictory but the creek sort of you know you're not sort of at water views you'd have to walk down and get water you'd have to uh, walk down to access the creek and I asked Josh about that and and when you're there on the site it's sort of catching a little bit more wind there's a few less flies up there it's sort of cooler and it's not at risk of flooding. It sort of separates you from where you know the animals are going to come that you will want to, uh, you know, try and capture. So it's like, oh, it makes all this other sort of logic. And, and just their location in the landscape is, it's a remarkable thing and such a strong connection to, you know, the big story of Australia that we all share. Well, I hope they're protected, are they, Andrew? Well, they're protected because it's Mythica land, uh, so you'd need permission to get access to them. 
and there's various um there's a there's some really amazing sort of sites up there different quarries and things like that so rolling forward in time a little bit you talked about the federation drought and how that resulted in the western lands act and all these amazing western lands buildings around western new south wales yeah that's right terry another great example of where a building can tell a story so the Western Lands Act was a major piece of legislation that sort of attempted to address some of the land management issues in Western New South Wales. And, and I guess in really short summary, that means some of the ways in which we didn't understand the way that the landscape worked. The Western Lands Act sort of put things in place and to administer that act, they built these buildings. These buildings are just some of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. I'm a Burke boy originally, and and the Western Lands building in Burke has just always been a feature of my life. It's this 1.5 metre high off the ground, so it's it's elevated in a in a flat town like Burke. It's all made of corrugated iron, sort of vertically arranged. It's got these deep, deep verandas, two or three metres deep, really high roof and really high ceilings inside. And it's, you know, for our little town, it's really quite ornate. But the way the building is constructed is is just ingenious. And you find this in a few um, buildings of the era. The walls were, were hollow. The ceilings are high. And at the top of the ceilings, they have like a, imagine a, a slatted turret that has that can draw airflow. So hot air rises, and the idea is, or the concept is, that the hot air within the building will rise up to the ceiling where there's vents, quite ornate, again, detailed pressed metal vents. The air is then drawn into the ceiling and out through that chimney that I described at the top. And because of that drawing up process, the cool air from underneath the building where they have originally had water tanks to cool down the air, uh, comes up through the walls and then down through these little vents that you can open or shut, falling to the floor and, again, just keeping that movement of air going up. So it's its own air conditioner, these buildings, and you can find them all around New South Wales, Dubbo, Moree, they're, they're in Hay. You know, similarly placed other administrative buildings in Maitland. Uh, I think there's one in Tamworth and, and they're still in Forbes. And I think probably most remarkably is they're all still existing and they're all still functional in that space they're all still used as lands administration buildings even though the administration processes and sort of you know rules and regulations have changed so extraordinary things at roughly the same time of their development there was this amazing private building built as well today known as iandra castle that really is an icon out there in greenthorpe isn't it Oh, it really is. Yeah. Well, I mean, Greenthorpe wouldn't exist. So Greenthorpe's a little town. If you drew a, a triangle between, uh, say, Grenfell, Cowra and Young, um, it's roughly in the middle. And the town is built because of the homestead, which is nearby. So Iandra Castle is actually called Mount Oriel Homestead. And you got to almost picture Downton Abbey. It's like a huge English manor house stuck out on the hill in this, you know, beautiful landscape, this beautiful rolling green hills landscape it's sort of very much reminiscent of the english countryside and it's become known because it's iandra parish it's become known as the iandra castle because it's just this huge dominating beautiful building the reason it's linked to land administration is the bloke who built it or the bloke who commissioned its building was also the he was known as the father of australian share farming so he had sort of 60 odd share farming operations in the region i guess if you think of all the land in that estate was carved up um, to smaller blocks where there were 60 other families living and working. Because of that, 
the town of Greenthorpe came into being. I mean, he's a real innovator, this bloke. He made an enormous shearing shed as well. His name was George Green. He purchased the land. Uh, there was 33,000 acres, uh, so in, you know, 13 and a half thousand hectares in 1878 it's, it's changed a little bit now so the actual acreage is is different he had the very first commercial planting of federation wheat which was that's a whole story in itself in the you know in the story of farming in australia and he built this castle and it's built out of reinforced concrete so there's a little two-story brick building there to start with and around it they constructed this enormous edifice 57 rooms turrets, towers, but it's made out of reinforced concrete, which would have been a massive innovation in its time. Um, it had conduit through the walls for the electrical, so they, they can still run the electrical through the walls and update it, which is what they're doing now. Running water, hot water. It was like really quite an amazing thing. And it's uh, and it, it, again, tells one of those stories that are half known, sometimes lost, a little bit vague, that nestle in the landscape of our, of our own history. I've had an several conversations with architects now you know like architecture is known it's the highest form of art so it's a quick and easy trap to fall deeply into being absorbed with the beauty of it you know you think about all the different elements you combine if you're making an architecturally considered house it's the you know what's the purpose of the house what landscape does it live in what's the climate it needs to respond to how do the people want to live within it what's their budget you know, like what's, you know, what's it need to do? How long does it need to last for? So the, all these considerations, so there's this really interesting stuff. But also, you know, our pioneers didn't have that sort of luxury, I think, in their hierarchy of needs. They were much closer to the bottom of the triangle. What will keep me sheltered? What will protect me through the winter? I guess in considering that, though, Andrew, I mean, that, that makes it even more remarkable, doesn't it? They're really a matter of survival, but yet you still see this incredible ingenuity and beauty, which might be a good segue into talking about the huts of the high country. Beautiful uh, little structures are sort of way up in, in the mountains, you know, down deep valleys. If you've ever driven through the high country, it's a matter of winding in and out of sort of cliff faces, you know, going down gullies, up over hills, through heavily wooded timber, you know, just to get to these places would have been quite a feat, you know, and then they had to work out a way to build there. So again, they're built pretty much of what was around them. They're hewn timber augmented with a little bit of corrugated iron, which would have been difficult to get to the place. Used, you know, probably not in the middle of winter unless they needed to be, but lived in certainly through the spring, autumn and summer months when doing your work up in those in those areas they've saved many lives in the winters for people who've been caught in blizzards up up in that sort of areas really beautiful responses really to exactly the big architectural questions that are being asked today except you know in a more practical way hundreds of years ago Speaking of responses to the environment, to landscape and bushfire not being an anomaly of Australian life but being a feature, architect Simon Anderson has created something quite beautiful and functional in the Megalong Valley in New South Wales. That's right. So the Megalong Valley winds down out of Katoomba. It feels like a, a prehistoric drive down into this beautiful valley. Deep sandstone escarpments and, um, yeah, just, you know, wild, wild country, the sort of country that they had a lot of trouble getting through. And when it burns, it's all eucalypt forest that goes crazy. So architect uh, Simon Anderson wanted uh, that him and his partner had purchased a bit of land there in the Megalong Valley and they wanted to live there, but they wanted to make something that would, you know, be bushfire proof, essentially. They spent a few years camping on the side 
site to work out where the wind came from, where the sun rose, etc. at different times of the year. And they've built this beautiful building. It's like two pavilions that sort of face each other in reverse. And uh, as he describes them, it's just, they're essentially concrete bunkers that are uh, built with insulation within the concrete layers itself. They're cladded by further uh, fireproof insulation and they're wrapped in these sort of awnings and blind systems that some can sort of, on the smaller windows that just sort of roll down mechanically and on the larger areas open areas they they fold up in they become sort of veranda platforms and fold down into heat shields and so this beautiful home is essentially a concrete fireproof bunker that they can just lock up and hopefully survive a terrifying bushfire in they wouldn't live in it of course they'd just lock it up and and leave it but it's it, just another fascinating way that that you've thought sort of thought about how is it that we live in this country you know with bushfire being you know, one of the key features of the of the Australian summers. It sounds amazing. So we should probably also touch on the beautiful Queenslanders. Uh, Queenslander was top of the list when the story came up. It's like, um, how do we write about, you know, the way you live in the landscape? It's like, well, think of a Queenslander. Uh, so these buildings are designed for the tropics and you don't really live in some of these houses that are built for tropical living, you live around them and under them and beside them. What's remarkable about them is, well, they, they perform the function for which they're designed, for starters. They, uh, they create big, cool, shady spaces. I, I talked to one of the blokes who builds them up there and, and, and remodels them, and he says, well, think of how you keep cool in Australia. You put on a big, sh- big hat and you try to find somewhere that will catch a breeze. And that's essentially what a Queenslander is. It's a big, shady hat. Um, over a nice big wide veranda where you can, and it's elevated so you can catch a breeze. But they also just become Queensland. You can't really be in one of these places and not be intrinsically caught up in the very you know place and, and location that you live. They're so identif- identifiable, but also there's such an immediate response to the climate and the landscape that they they really are Queensland. They they really are, aren't they? Very iconic. The incredible statistic that you note in the story, which we, we sort of know, but when we see it there in black and white, it really makes you think. Nearly 90% of our population lives within 50 kilometres of the coast. So you sort of extrapolated from that that the definitive vernacular architecture of the country is most likely going to taste like salt. And you used the wonderful example of ocean house to explore that lovely interplay between i guess land and sea yeah that's right isn't that an amazing statistic you know you sort of you sort of imagine australia's a little bit more populated in the interior than that but that's abs data you know so it's quite quite amazing so yes architect rob mills who was also kind enough to give me some time has built a couple of houses down there along the in the great ocean road area and ocean house is one of them that's built in lawn you know right on the cliff face it looks out across not the 12 apostles but a similar sort of escarpment the monolithic sort of structure rising out of the sea Um, so literally hugging the cliff there and when you think about these if you've ever been there these sort of that landscape is just characterised by high energy. The waves are persistently crashing against the ground. The wind pours in from the south. And, you know, that's a really pretty difficult place to build a house. 
you double that in the fact that it's got bushland all the way behind it. So it's like threatened by salt and sea and wind from the front and by bushfires from the back, this house. And all of these things had to be sort of sensitively considered when he designed and thought of this place. Also, when you think of a, a coastal house, you think of blue and white uh, timber house with a bit of yellow in the, in the finishings. Um, and he wanted to sort of challenge that a little bit um, and, you know, certainly not make it timber, but make it much more solid, something sort of rooted in the landscape. So it's made out of concrete. But the view also looks out to the ocean and equally out to the bush behind. So he sort of um, you know, quite sensitively made the argument that landscape isn't just a one-way view. It's a 360-degree view. You live within it. You have to be able to respond to all aspects of it. And and being concrete, it sort of performs so much better on those frosty Victorian winters. Yes, I can vouch for that. <laughs> So I guess talking about one of the most identifiable pieces of quintessentially Australian architecture, you can't really go past the shearing shed or wool shed, can you? No, they're, they're pretty much the, uh, if you had to pick one building that was quintessentially Australian, it would, it's probably a shearing shed. And there's some amazing examples out there. There really are some remarkable sheds. So innovative. You, you could do this whole story on, on innovative shearing sheds. You know, you've seen circular and octagonal ones and stone and, you know, uh, dome-roofed ones. Um, I sort of tried to contrast a couple that I, that I was aware of. One was a, an old, old shed that still had, you know, it looks like a modern architectural response with slatted gabled sort of uh, roof, uh, slatted sort of sawtooth roof design. Um, that's out at Nulla Nulla and sort of way in the tucked into the bottom southwest corner of New South Wales. But the it was contrasted against a really interesting shed, which is at deep water in the Riverina, and that's an architecturally designed shed. It's only a, well, it's a, it's a few years old now, but I guess relatively recently built. And you know, and it is one of those ones that also does what shearing sheds don't always do so this one is designed to catch breeze they weren't always designed to catch breeze they're designed to sort of move sheep through this one's designed to move people through and move them through comfortably so you know just subtle slopes on pens where you've got to catch a sheep um a, a bit of extra awning space out the side so you've got shade at just the point where you need it cooling you know like drip systems in and around the building so that creates its own evaporative cooling system and located on a part of the landscape which will maximise the breeze and, and sort of make all that workflow a lot, a lot more easy. So it's a really, I guess, clever but functional response to um, yeah, one of the difficult, most difficult jobs in Australia. Yeah, I guess architects, particularly when they're dealing with working places, they always there there always has to be substance as well as style. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's not always considered. It's it's. Um, I think in some places it was like just whack a shed up, the sheep go in one end with wool, they come out the other end without wool. So it is nice to see these considerations come in, and and it's a it's a very tough job shearing. Anything you could do to make it a little bit easier would um, certainly keep the shearers around longer. You were immersed in this subject for some time for this story, Andrew. I guess to wrap up, what kind of I, I guess conclusion did you come to at the end of all this, or what what are you, what are your thoughts on the architecture of the Australian bush now? Well, I think there's a vernacular that is, um, you know, that's a that that's a, a language that's local to its to its area that's written into many of the buildings in Australia, and in some cases. 
their responses to immediate needs. So you will find, you know, panel buildings whacked together in the Australian bush now that are, you know, are just fulfilling a need for a mining operation, for a, a growth burst in a town, et cetera, et cetera. But what you most commonly find in the long-term, you know, architectural vernacular, the stuff that actually belongs in the place, is it's built from the place. It uses the materials that come from very close by. It's an immediate response to the way the way the landscape has provided or what's available in the landscape. And it tends to be not treated as just a, a short-term fix in that way. It's not treated as a product. It's more treated as a resource. And it's lived in as a resource. It's lived around. It's lived through. It's lived beside. And it's considered then as something of more inherent value. So the actual vernacular architecture of Australia is valuable to its place. It's not transient. It's going to be there for a long time. Well, you've certainly written a fascinating story, Andrew, and thank you very much for joining me for this podcast. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for letting me babble on. (laughs) Not at all. Andrew has written this story about the architecture of the Australian bush for issue 153 of Outback Magazine. That wraps up this episode. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Terry Cowley for Outback Magazine and I'll talk to you soon.